Despite the charming and persuasive tactics of Black Lives Matter and their contingency, despite the fact that they push an ideology that promotes violence and results in the deaths of innocent people, primarily police officers, and not unlike their ideological forebears, the Black Liberation Army, whose self-professed Queen Joanne Chesimard, a.k.a. Asata Shakur, lives in exile for, you'll never guess, cop killing. Despite all of this, Black Lives Matter is still having some challenges, winning people over to their cause and ostensibly improving the lot of those they claim to represent. Now, since the goal of radicals, as we know, is to stoke the fire and not extinguish it, I understand why it seems this ideology and its manifestation of behavior is the problem and not the solution. But for those seeking solutions and those seeking truth, you don't have to look far. Asians. More specifically, Asian privilege. Now, you might have already noticed the absence of a violent Asian Lives Matter movement and a complete lack of disruptive protest by Asian mobs in your neighborhood. Now, one could claim this community is completely devoid of the us versus them mentality. Asians are not known to demand others be held responsible for their happiness. Certainly, this is due to special treatment and concessions like those that BLM is demanding, right? Well, I want to thank Helen Rally and her newly released book, The Broken Welcome Mat, for helping to answer this question with a resounding no. Now, her article recently caught my attention when I was Googling a new Pew Research study that came out and was centered around income equality, which, of course, I don't take seriously. Income is a factor of value-add, education, hustle, negotiation, work ethic, and a lot of other items, all of which get left out of the They get left at the door when discussing income inequality. But bear with me. The Pew study that shows Asian men and women out-earn everyone, and it draws a couple interesting conclusions about what contributes to Asian Americans' impressive economic success. There's very little evidence that members of BLM can read. So I've utilized the spoken word to share these conclusions. But first, let's examine their privilege. Asian Americans in the 19th century were accused of stealing American jobs and driving down wages and soon became the constant victims of what Frederick Douglass called cruel harshness and brutal violence. This is coming from Frederick Douglass, smart guy. Fortunately, the benevolence of the state intervened and the government of California constantly used its legislative power against Chinese immigrants. Wait a minute. That doesn't sound right. The state's purpose is to help people, I've been told. I must have this written wrong. Here we go. In 1852, California demanded a special foreign minor tax from non-U.S. citizen minors. Well, since Chinese immigrants were the largest non-citizen minor group, no doubt they were intended to shoulder this tax burden, which required paying $3 each month at a time when their salary was approximately $6 per month. Now, tax collectors could legally take and sell the property of minors who refused or could not pay this tax. Who knew that 50% taxation rates that wealthy Californians enjoy today started with Asian privilege? I didn't. Now, when the Central Pacific Railroad couldn't find many willing Americans to take on the backbreaking and extremely dangerous work of building the Transcontinental Railroad, it turned to the group it knew it could depend on, Chinese immigrants. This is actually portrayed in the fabulous TV show Hell on Wheels, which I highly recommend at least through seasons one and two before they totally lost their way. I uh, was disappointed in season three and I gave up in season four. So if you've seen season five, which is the final season and you liked it, let me know in the comments because uh, three and four kind of sucked, especially when Lily Bell, you know what, no spoilers, but she was amazing. Anyway, as soon as the Transcontinental Railroad was completed, Chinese were referred to as yellow peril and often the target of violence. The government, whose job, of course, it is to prosecute discriminatory acts and uphold our nation's founding principles of all men are created equal, 
instead supported popular anti-Chinese sentiment by passing the Page Act of 1875, a law based on false assumptions including that all Chinese men were coolies, involuntary indentured laborers. That's the C word, coolies. Just keep that in mind. Now, a few years after the Page Act, the U.S. Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, exclusionary, so much for diversity. The act suspended the immigration of Chinese laborers, skilled or unskilled, for 10 years. So think Donald Trump, except no one was getting exploded, macheted, and there were no Twin Towers or Jumbo Jets. Now, the Page Act also required every Chinese person traveling in or out of the country to carry a certificate identifying his or her status as a laborer, scholar, diplomat, or merchant. And today we complain you have to show ID to vote. Now, in 1888, Pennsylvania's Rep. William Scott, he's a Democrat, I'm sure you're shocked, introduced legislation to extend restrictions from the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 because they just didn't go far enough. The Scott Act excluded immigration of all persons of the Chinese race except Chinese officials, teachers, students, merchants, or travelers for pleasure of curiosity. That's interesting. Now, the sentiment towards Chinese immigrants existed until about World War II when China and the United States were allies. The 1943 Magnuson Act repealed the Chinese Exclusion Act and established an annual quota of 105 immigration visas for Chinese immigrants. Small fries compared to the amount of Muslim refugees flooding the United States. But I digress. It was during this period that our Democratic president was putting another group of Asian immigrants into forced concentration camps solely because of their ancestry. Only at the passage of the Immigration Act of 1965 did our nation begin to see large numbers of Asian immigrants. No special government social welfare programs targeted Asians. On the contrary, programs such as affirmative action and racial quotas for college entrants instead created preferences against Asians. An example, Asians currently receive a 50-point penalty on their SAT exams, whereas the non-privileged races receive between a 185 and a 230-point, what's the word they use, bonus. Not racist at all. In fact, one of the new things on the internet is race tutoring on how to appear less Asian. That's now a thing. In fact, it was uh, done very well by, if, <laughs> if you saw this on the news, by Mindy Kaling's brother, which she was disgusted by. But hey, got to give him credit for uh, shedding light and bringing awareness to an important conversation. He created some dialogue. Now, Black Lives Matter would be putting administrators in blankets and frying them like bacon if the roles were reversed. So now that we've gone over the history, let's look at what the Pew study confirms are the reasons, examples, conclusions, etc., for why Asians hold this higher perch in American economic life. Number one, an emphasis on education. Educational attainment, quote, among Asian Americans is markedly higher than that of the U.S. population overall. Among those ages 25 and older, 49% hold at least a college degree compared with 28% of the U.S. population overall. Black Lives Matter spend very little time extolling the virtues of graduating from high school or college. High school graduation lags for blacks about 20% nationwide behind that of Asians. Number two, emphasis on marriage and family. Asian newborns are less likely than all U.S. newborns to have an unmarried mother, 16% versus 41%. It's a huge gap. And their children are more likely than all U.S. children to be raised in a household with two married parents. Again, almost a 20% gap, 80% versus 63%. 
Now, Black Lives Matter also spend very little time extolling the values of two-parent privilege. This wasn't a big problem for black families. In the 1940s, it was 14%. And then LBJ and the Great Society came along in the 1960s, and it rose to 25%. However, this is also the time when Daniel Patrick Monaghan wrote The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. His report focused on the deep roots of black poverty in the United States and controversially concluded that the high rate of families headed by single mothers would greatly hinder progress of blacks toward economic and political equality. He was widely condemned as a racist, and today black illegitimacy is around 75%. Number three, emphasis on work ethic. Nearly 7 in 10, that's 69% of Asians, say people can get ahead if they are willing to work hard. Ain't nobody got time for that. Black supremacists like Mark Lamont Hill have suggested that you cannot be racist if you do not have the institutional power to do so. Giving a pass to those who commit crimes and basically waste the opportunities given to them in the name of past injustices that they nor the victims of their felonious behavior had anything to do with. Also claiming that the power disparity is the real culprit. That. Uh, to say that the Black Lives Matter movement is racist is bizarre to me, not just because black people don't have the institutional power to be racist or to deploy racism, mm -hmm. but because the movement is called for justice. Now, let's evaluate. Between 1940 and 1960, when black political power was virtually non-existent, the black poverty rate fell from 87 percent to 47 percent. Jason Riley in his book, Stop Helping Us, says that, that between nation uh, says that between 1970 and 2001, the number of black elected officials nationwide skyrocketed from fewer than 1,500 to more than 9,000. But as Charles Barkley has pointed out, black poverty has remained roughly the same throughout. Despite political gains, there have been dramatic reversals in teen unemployment, crime, out-of-wedlock births, and family stability. Now, Walter E. Williams, who I love, counters the cultural wrecking ball posing as an intellectual named Mark Lamont Hill by stating the obvious, that political power is neither a, nece uh, a necessary nor a sufficient condition for socioeconomic progress. More evidence? Today, Asian Americans represent about 6% of the U.S. population, but compared to other minority groups, these Americans lack political representations. For example, there are 13 Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders currently serving in the House of Representatives of the 114th Congress, compared to 46 African Americans and 34 Hispanic Americans. Now, the real problem like always, is an aversion to the truth. Admitting it, accepting it. Looking in the mirror and stop being loyal to leaders that lie to you, stop celebrating a culture that harms you, and have the humility and responsibility to put the blame where it belongs. Asian people are awesome. If you're a true seeker who loves liberty, history, free speech, or watching YouTube videos that aren't about cats, please subscribe. And if you'd like to see more videos on this channel, please consider becoming a patron. But I'm a big fan of money. I like it. I use it. I have a little. I keep it in a jar on top of my refrigerator. I'd like to put more in that jar. That's where you come in.